0: Hello, my name is Harriet Heibel, and I've been part of the Walnut Creek Prez community for over 20 years. During that time, I've been involved in a lot of different ministries, including Special Olympics basketball and bowling, and teaching Sunday school to developmentally challenged adults. Most recently, during the last seven years, I've been co-facilitating a divorce care and boundaries program. I've learned a lot during that time. I've learned that these classes are really helpful about teaching self-control. And one of the important things about self-control is that it's foundational to self-awareness. And self-awareness leads to opening ourselves up to change. For people who are experiencing the brokenness that usually comes along with divorce, it means allowing God in to begin the healing process. For people who suffer with their inability to set appropriate boundaries for themselves, it allows them to surrender to God's mercy, grace, and wisdom in ways that only he can provide. These are important lessons that have made a difference in my own life and have enabled me to bring to others, which is a good segue to our three scripture readings for today. First comes from Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In Galatians 5.22-25, to 25, And finally, from Luke twelve thirty-five to 40, be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of
1: the Lord. Amen. Thank you to Harriet for that. I'm, I'm tempted to just let that be the sermon because that was such a great intro to, to self-control, which is our topic today. But I, I will be preaching, however, for the next 20 minutes. I've decided that's okay with you. Uh, my name is Brian Kay. Again, I'm up here every so often preaching. I'm the pastor of Christian Formation at WCPC. So if you've never met, I'd love to uh, shake your hand after the service. But as I said, we are toward the end of our Fruit of the Spirit series for this summer, and self-control is the fruit that we're looking at today. I first looked at this text, and I confessed I'd never looked at the Greek behind it before until a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, boy, you know, self-control, it sounds like such a modern word, it sounds like a, almost the kind of a word you'd think of in a self-help book or something. And so I, uh, I did the Greek research, and the word is enkrateia, which really just does mean (laughs) self-control. It's enkrateia. It's a it's a rule within an an inside dominion that Paul is talking about, which the Spirit of God causes to grow in us as we grow in Him. But that's what we're going to talk about: is self-control. That. Also strikes me as potentially a very dour-sounding kind of a topic for a sermon, self-control. Are you self-controlled? And yet, I think if any of you here have really seriously uh, felt there was a kind of a war within you at any time, if any of you have seriously tried to work on yourselves, if any of you like, like Devana have congratulated yourself because, what was it, your screen time was down 20 minutes, was that what it was? And you say, good job, self. That is, I don't know if you were doing that intentionally, that's an, ins, an inside relationship you were commenting on, Devana. Uh, we're going to talk about what this inside relationship is like that we have, and how it is that it's possible to gain more control over the unruly parts within us. So what's happening when, you know, this is a very humdrum example, I suppose, but you might have ever had this experience where you, you, you look at, there's a plate of cookies, okay, in the kitchen, and you say, I'm going to have one of those. And then you have one, and then five minutes later, another part rises up within you and says, you know what, we're going to have six of those. <laughs> and then the first part says, are you serious? It was one, the, the limit was one, and there's a, bit, a little bit of a battle. And that is what we're beginning to talk about when we notice the need for self-control. There are, there are forces within us that disagree with each other. We have two wills, or even more than two wills, sometimes within us. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a classic story for a reason, because all of us can relate at some level to this idea of forces within us, forces of light and dark that are really duking it out sometimes hour by hour. And a person without self-control, the Bible would say, is really a person who has no defenses. Proverbs 25, 28 says, a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. You're really defenseless to some of the worst impulses that may rise up within you. Well, the other hard thing about this, I suppose, is that there's uh, really no one else to blame. We're looking, at, we're looking within in a text like this. You can't blame society for lack of self-control. You can't blame your family of origin, at least not entirely. <laughs> um, in the words of Led Zeppelin, it's nobody's fault but mine. And so this is going to be a very internalized look, I admit, in this um, time we have together. looking within to see what these forces are all about. Thankfully, the Bible has a very rich and nuanced view of the inner life, and I might even call it a biblical psychology that starts to rise to the surface if you have eyes to see it as the scripture comments on what's going on with these internal forces and um, elements of control. Well, let's get into it. Um, This little word self-control is a perfect doorway into this whole rich biblical psychology of the inner self. So three, three main points here. Here's the first. The very word self-control implies that we have a kind of a relationship to ourselves. And here's the backdrop. Uh, when you're looking at human nature as it shows up in the scripture, the first place we start to see any data on it, if you want to put it that way, is in the Genesis creation story. So God makes Adam and Eve and puts them in a garden. And right away, Adam and Eve, right out of the gates have uh, three relationships that they're really thrown into, thrown right into. It's a relationship with God, a relationship with each other, and a relationship with the created world. And in all three of those relationships, which are, by the way, the same relationships that we have today, uh, when they're really humming along, these relationships are filled with love. They're filled with the giving and receiving of love, the giving and receiving of self, you might say. And there's a real flourishing, in fact, human identity, your identity, my identity is, in a sense, it's a footnote to what you are doing and experiencing within those relationships. However, there's a fourth relationship that we hardly ever talk about that barely shows up in the Genesis case, but does show up again and again in scripture. And that is this relationship with self. It's the, I call it the fourth relational domain, just to sound hyper-technical about it. The relationship inside with ourselves. Now, to make the case that this shows up everywhere, I've got four verses from the Psalms that show you show the psalmist as uh, speaking, relating to himself in many ways. So these are verses that you fly over sometimes because the main point is somewhere else, but the implication is there's an inner relationship. Here we go. Psalm 42. The psalmist says, "Why are you in despair, O my soul?" Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. And what's happening there, among other things, is that there is a kind of a hopeful core self that the psalmist is inhabiting. But from that hopeful core self, he's speaking to this despairing lesser self within him, and he's encouraging him. He's saying, like, Hey, I know you're despairing, but hope in God. There's reasons for hope. Psalm one sixteen seven, the psalmist says. Return o oh my soul to your rest for the God, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So here again the psalmist is talking to his own soul some other part within himself and he is uh, encouraging it to go back to its one true resting place. This must mean that the psalmist had a part of him that was feeling anxious or kind of homeless mentally speaking and so the psalmist says there's a safe home for you return to it. Let me let me woo you back. Psalm 62, 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. And what's happening here? There is a core self of the psalmist who's saying, Soul, uh, I can sense you're impatient. You're kind of like the. the parable that Jesus told, the servant's waiting for the bridegroom. You're you're anxious and impatient for the bridegroom to return back to the house. I can sense your impatience, but I challenge you to wait for God. Wait on him. He is worth waiting for. He always shows up. Hang in there. Wait for God. Keep your lamps burning. And then Psalm 131 too, just the last one here. One of my favorites. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And here the psalmist is really reporting to us, saying, let me tell you about what happens within me. I've got a part of me that's like a, a child who had been very uh, uh, unruly or, or very distraught, but I weaned him, I calmed him, I quieted him. There's a part of me that's almost like a, like a child who needs uh, some nurture, and you probably have a part of you like that too, and the psalmist is reporting on this, we could call it a skill, to to soothe the child within. I really could go on and on here, and you might be sitting here thinking like, Brian, this sounds very, now you've made a town that sounds so biblical, is it, does this pan out in real life? And I've got 20, not 27, I've got probably 11 examples from how we, but I'm, I'm going to give you only one from Johnny Cash, okay, you don't need the Bible to necessarily show you this inner life that has this, these dialogues within. The Bible is incredibly rich in it. But even Johnny Cash says, do you guys know this line? Sometimes I am two people. Johnny is the nice one. Cash is the troublemaker. They fight. That's what he says. All to say, in a sense, there's not just one you, there are multiple yous. There's not just one self, there are multiple selves. So how do, we, how do we organize all this in our heads? Here's the second part. Who are the parties to the relationship? Who are the players? There is a core you, a basic core self, the Bible would say, and then there are a host of lesser yous all floating around in there. There's a core you and many lesser yous. Paul himself had a very vivid way of speaking about this um, multiplicity within him. In Romans 7, 15 and following, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. This is the Apostle Paul, a mature Christian. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I do not do the good that I want, for the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. I don't have self-control sometimes, Paul says. These other parts take over. So here's, again, the two, the two halves of this is that there's a core you. I call it the core self. It could be called the authentic self. It could be called um, many things. But the, uh, here's some biblical language for it. Uh, the core you, if, if I'll put it this way. If you're someone who's come to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, And therefore, that means if you're someone who has the Holy Spirit within you, uh, there's not Christians who have the Holy Spirit and other Christians that don't. If you're a Christian at all, it's because the Holy Spirit has come inside of you and opened your heart to the Lord Jesus and you've embraced him. If that's true of you, you have a core self that is what Paul calls a new creation. So you could say that the core self is the new you. It's the new creation within you. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. There's other words for it. Even Paul has other words for it. Paul calls it the inner being, the esoanthropon in another text. It's the um, it's the inner self that is rooted in God. I sometimes call it the self in the Spirit to emphasize that this is a a, a core of us that is energized because the Holy Spirit has given it birth. Uh, and what we can say about this core self is that it is freed from all bondages. It has, when it's, when it's running the show for us, it has a fundamental love of God. It has a fundamental love of other people. Um, it delights in God, it delights in the will of God. It, it seeks out others' good before it seeks out its own good. Um, it's it's uh, the most glorious version of yourself and it is the version of you that will go on into eternity. But the thing is, on this life, it is not always in control. It's not always running the show. It wasn't always running the show for Paul. But we have to get that first in our head. There is a core you in the Holy Spirit that is attached to Jesus Christ, loves God more than any other love, and puts others' needs first. But then there's lesser yous. The many lesser yous. The false selves, some people call it. The... Biblical language here is, again, it's varied, but Paul calls it the flesh in some places. Uh, it is, it's the operation of sin within us, but it, it's broken apart into these many little manifestations. Uh, Paul also says in, in Romans 7, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Okay, here's Romans seven, twenty-two and 23. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. There's the core self. Uh, but, but, I see in my members, and this is Paul's other language for these false selves, he calls them your members. There's another law waging war from the members against the law of my mind, my new self, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So the lesser yous are their, their parts of you, their members. They are like little subpersonalities of the flesh, I sometimes call it. They rise up within us for all kinds of reasons. This is in a whole other seminar we could talk about here, but it's, you know, where do these things come from? Some do arise from traumas in your life. Some do arise from experiences you had in your family of origin. Some arise from things that feel threatening in your present life, but, uh, and some are just because of sin, (laughs) just the sin nature that we still have. But wherever they come from and however they're shaped, the thing about all of these false selves is that none of them love God. They don't really understand God. I like to say that none of them get the gospel. They might kind of believe in God in some general sense, but he's either a way too harsh God or he's a way too permissive God. (laughs) He's not the biblical God. It's some radical misinterpretation or they may be just simply oblivious. They're just parts of us that are running scared, trying to find the next hit, the next quick fix, the next um, safe haven that doesn't really end up being that safe. Our false selves are in the business of taking refuge in false saviors. They're, uh, I call them the little idolaters within us. They're always proposing to us different uh, venues for the good life that don't have to do with the Bible's view of the good life. Here's the real path of safety. Here's the real consolation in life. Here's the real great goal. And the thing is, they're all trying to control your life. They want to be in control. And that's why there's the fighting. That's why it's the Johnny Cash versus the, the Johnny versus the Cash, the Dr. Jekyll versus the Mr. Hyde, the one cookie versus the seven cookies. Well, what do we do about all this? Self-control is the one word answer, but that doesn't tell us much about the how. Uh, There are four, you can go to the self-help section of a a bookstore and find a lot of books on bootstrapping, a a lot of books on how to muster up this kind of um, willpower. And some of those books are great. But the fullest, richest, New Testament-y biblical answer is what I want to lay out to you now just for a little bit. And that's the third main part of our time today. Our self-control, how we get it, how we operate within it, it's modeled after Jesus Christ. It's modeled after his type of control, his type of dominion. And the way Jesus did it is through three offices the office of the prophet, the office of the priest, and the office of the king. So bear with me for a minute here. This is the whole career of Jesus in a nutshell. So Jesus Christ, <laughs> I was telling Tommy, like, I don't know how I'm going to get this all into one sermon. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm, I'm doing it. Jesus Christ is... God in the flesh, but he is also the perfect human being. As a human being, he operates as prophet, priest, and king. That's what he's doing for everyone he meets. He's either acting in the role of prophet or of priest or of king. This is how he relates. Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet, and what the Bible means by that is to say that like a prophet, as a prophet, Jesus tells the truth about God. It's a truth that's either hope-giving, he's putting out some truth to give you hope when you need it, or it's the truth of a warning if you're on the wrong path. But a prophet gives the truth about God and the world. Jesus as the ultimate priest. What, is a, what does a priest do? A priest is someone who reconciles God to his people. A priest is a stand between. He represents God to the people and the people to God, and he prays for the people and he listens to them and he helps them to confess their sins and he brings them into harmony with their Creator. Jesus is the ultimate priest, the Bible says, because he laid down his life on the cross to ultimately, once and for all, reconcile us to God. But Jesus is also a king. The Bible calls him the king of kings, the lord of lords. He is the king of all kings, but he's also, unlike the kings that we see or the leaders we see that are sometimes overly harsh or overly sloppy in their rule, Jesus is the perfect king, a perfect blending and harmony between firmness and kindness, between justice and mercy. He rules well, always. One of the bigger surprises in the Bible, in this vision of the New Testament, is that you're in my human nature, to the degree that we're in the Spirit, we too become prophets, priests, and kings. The Reformation was all about emphasizing this, that the priesthood of all believers, you've heard of that, but there's a sense in which if Jesus is the capital P, P, K, prophet, priest, and king, we are the small P, P, K, prophet, priest, and king. We have a role as truth tellers, we have a role of, as priestly reconcilers between people and among, with God, and we have the role of kings or queens, uh, rulers, ones who have proper control. So here's the, we're moving toward the sweeping conclusion here, and this is just a tantalizing bit, I hope, but uh, it'll lead to many more questions. But how do you have self-control? You play prophet and priest and king to your parts. From your core self that's rooted in Christ through the Holy Spirit, you, 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 you play, you act out as prophet, priest, and especially in this case king to those unruly parts within you. Here's what I mean. How do you play priest to yourself? Well, a priest has to listen well, first of all, otherwise he doesn't know who the person is who he's trying to reconcile to God. And so if you are a priest to yourself, you listen to those unruly parts. You don't sweep them away or just bootstrap your way through and push them aside. You go, huh, soul, you seem downcast within me. Tell me about that. I literally, when I wake up kind of on the wrong side of the bed and there's either some kind of anxiety or some weird bitterness that came out of nowhere, like, was I having a dream? Like, why am I waking up cranky? Uh, I sometimes will try to do this. Play, I play priest to, the, to these parts. I'll say like, whoa, that, boy, I feel there's a little, there's a little bitterness there. Uh, before I get out of bed, let's, what's, what's going on, soul? What's happening down there? What's, where are we coming from? I'm all ears. And you listen. And sometimes you'll hear something pretty interesting. You've got to listen well to your soul and uh, several other things. But I'll just start with that listening well. As prophets, though, to your soul, you speak truth back to the soul, to the parts. It might be the truth of consolation. You might say, hey, I get that you're anxious, but I want, I want you to know it, it's going to be okay. You got the God of the universe in your corner. It's okay. Jesus Christ is the great lover of your soul. I know you might lose your job, embarrass yourself today. I know you might, I know your taxes are mounting up, I know these things happen, but I want you to know fundamentally, cosmically, you're going to be okay because God is good. That's prophetic hope-giving to your anxious little parts. Might be warning as well. You might say to yourself, you know, you've, I've got to, I've got to warn you, if you, if you, if you, if you have the seventh cookie, (laughs) you're going to be sorry. You really will. There can be some edge to the, to the prophet part. If you read the Old Testament prophets, there was some edge. But I'll finish on this, playing king to yourself. Kings are rulers. As you sit in the throne as the king, you're gonna have people come in up to the throne and say, we really need to do this. There's an enemy at the gate. We really need to do this. We need to invest in this uh, new project. And the king eventually listens as a priest and then finally goes, okay, thank you. But here's my ruling. (laughs) We're gonna do this. We're gonna launch this army. We're not gonna launch that army. And so as king, you are saying to yourself, parts. I know you've got an idea for what we should do next, but here's what we're doing. This is my ruling. I serve under God, but this is what we're going to do. And this is the part that sounds the most like willpower as you hear about it in the world. Um, But that willpower idea has to be jettisoned a bit to kind of embrace this full, rich biblical sense of being a good, noble, just, kind, and firm ruler within. I'll just leave it at that playing prophet, priest, and king to your parts. Just take that, gnaw on it a little bit, and consider what you're going to say to yourself next time the Mr. Hyde shows up, next time the seventh cookie voice shows up, next time the voice that has an impulsive movement. Figure out how to listen well, how to speak back, and then how to rule. And uh, I'll just close and pray us us to the end. And I'm going to finish with, without a slide today, just... The John Stott prayer, and just you've heard this by now a lot over the summer, but just pray along with me in your heart. Let's close together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your son Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and our king. But we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to us so that we can ourselves adopt in a lesser sense, in in an obedient sense, the role of prophet, priest, and king. We want to play that role to every person that we meet but we also, in light of today's texts, want to learn how to play prophet, priest, and king to ourselves within us. Give us the beginning of wisdom for how to do that. And Father, we address you now with this prayer that we've been using all through the summer. Heavenly Father, we pray that we may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, we pray that this day we may take up our cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, we pray that this day you will fill us with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in our lives, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and today especially, self-control. Amen.